Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, and I'm accompanied here by my son. Man, I almost didn't respond. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, guys, it's, uh, it's Dr. J. Fitz here, guys. I'm glad you got back with us. Uh, and as you can see, uh, if this is your first time, we joke around a lot. So um, I'm Dr. Cole. I'm all, all jokes aside, I'm Dr. Cole. It's Dr. Fitz. We're uh, residents that, that host this podcast. Uh, we've been doing it for a while. So if it's your first time, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you again for listening. And um, uh, Do- Dr. Fitz, we actually have a, a good episode in store today. And um, this is actually, it was a great episode. And I remember when we were recording, I was like, man, I wish I had seen this, uh, seen this before we did, uh, before we started our pediatrics rotation, because I, because um, uh, he, he like, the way he broke stuff down was great. I'll let you go ahead and, and tell him, um, tell him a little bit more about the episode, man. But it, it was just an excellent episode. Uh, if you're going into peas or if you're about to do a rotation piece, definitely listen to this before you, before you, uh, before you start your rotation. But uh, Jay, go ahead and uh, take it away. Yeah, guys. So what he's fumbling and bumbling about is uh, Dr. Robert Cho's uh, talk that he gave on adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. He did an amazing talk with this. And, you know, if you've ever been in clinic and, you know, with pediatric on a pediatric service, you know, there's a lot of angles that comes up. A lot of things going on with the radiograph. You need to kind of understand there are certain names for this, you know, these classifications and like what's going on. And it's kind of hard to catch on to it at first. But I think this talk, especially along with the uh, YouTube video, is very helpful to get you prepared to know how to deal with scoliosis when it comes into the clinic and be able to uh, talk about it in a way that makes it seem like you really know what's going on. So Dr. Robert Show, like I say, wonderful talk. Uh, he did his residency at the Drexel uh, University College of Medicine Fellowship at the uh, Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery and Scoliosis University of California um, in Radish Children's Hospital. So that's where he did his fellowship at. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoyed. I'm probably going to listen back a couple times myself. It was a, a really good talk. And uh, you guys drop some comments and let us know what you think. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hey, welcome to another exciting episode with the Nailed It Ortho Group. Guys, we are so glad to have you guys back for another episode. We have a great guest here with us today, and we're going to have another exciting topic. Uh, Dr. Cho, we really appreciate you for coming out with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely awesome. Uh, this is a topic that uh, I I still have to spend a little extra time before I go back to my peace rotations and kind of just brush up on a lot of the a lot of the uh, the different terminology, some of the angles and things to look for on x-ray. So I'm really looking forward to this talk. And I know uh, Cody got his pen and paper out. So uh, we're, we're all, we're all <laughs> as you know, great one. Yeah, for sure. I just had a feeling. So Dr. Show, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit before we get too far in the show. Uh, just some basic questions. Uh, this is one pretty, you know, kind of somewhat outside of orthopedics. What's your favorite part about being in uh, Los Angeles? Yeah, so I'm not a Los Angeles native. I'm actually from Philadelphia originally. Um, and so I've lived here for like the last 10 plus years. Um, I mean, it's hard to beat the weather. I mean, today it was 78 degrees, I think. And oh, that's my nice. parents, yeah, my parents in Philadelphia, they were shoveling snow off their car. So, um, uh, you know, that's, that's really nice. Also, it's uh, really diverse over here. So, uh, you know, uh, people are really open to lots of different types of thoughts, you know, ideas. Um, food here is really great. So uh, really nice living here. Absolutely awesome. One of, uh, I've actually only been to LA once and uh, I went out there and uh, young, young Cody, actually, he was out there and I had to go teach oh, him how to, uh, <laughs> had to teach him how to uh, <laughs> surf. So yeah, we went surfing. Yeah, it was fun. It was pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah, I really like it there before uh, everything that went on with the pandemic. That was, it was on my list of places to try to get back to this year. So uh, maybe, yeah. maybe sometime soon. Yeah. I guess that's a good transition into the second question there is, um, is there anything that you outside of orthopedics like to do for fun or enjoy to do? 
Yeah, so um, there's plenty I like to do. I, I, I love playing the guitar. Um, it's, I've been playing the guitar for like 30 years. Nice. So I've been, that's probably my biggest hobby. Um, but I pretty much love anything mechanical. Um, so even with my guitar, I do all the setup and all the, any electronic work or repairs, do all that stuff myself. Um, I love cars, uh, driving them, racing them, fixing them up, you name it. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Like you, like you, you drive on on one of the tracks, or um... oh, I've driven many tracks. Yeah, I, oh, I love, nice. I love cars. Uh, I used to, I, I, I used to have a Nissan GTR. Um, I, I still miss it, but my kids, their legs grew too big, um, so I had to, I had to trade that in. Uh, so now I drive an Alfa Romeo Giulia Quadrifoglio. Oh, that's uh, so. pretty neat. I'm yeah, it's, even, it's a fun I, car. I, I'm pretty behind. I don't know what half of that is. <laughs> <laughs> is. Is the Nissan, is that one of the cars that you, you would think could do like drifting? Is that one oh, of the cars? Yeah, you can, you can drift on it. It's a little oh, harder yeah. on that car because it's all-wheel drive. Um, the, the Alfa Romeo, actually, I can drift easily. It's, it's rear-wheel drive, so you can drift it like nothing. Oh, that's, that's nice. That's, that that's pretty, pretty neat. Cool. Are you a fan of NASCAR as well? Or do you, do you, just, do you race more? Or do you just kind of just like testing out different cars? Yeah, I'm not huge into watching um, racing, but I do <laughs> yeah. like actually doing it. Um, it it's fun. Uh, I, I mean, I'm no professional, but uh, any chance I get, I, I like doing it. Oh, that's that's great. Um, I, I think that is a, um, a good, I think we'll leave it on that. That's uh, pretty interesting. I think we'll leave it on that and kind of switch to our talk of the day, or at least our topic of the day. And we kind of just have just kind of like a, a made up case here, um, or a case that at least I've seen many times when I was doing pediatrics. And uh, Dr. Cho, so say, for example, you have a 14-year-old, let's say 12-year-old female who was referred to your clinic for a scoliosis concern. They were just screamed at the school gym and told they possibly have scoliosis, and they were sent to your clinic. You're giving no other uh, information or any other details. Uh, what are some of the things that you would kind of start to ask this family or this patient? Like, what are some of the things on history and physical exam that's important to realize? Yeah, so I would say, you know, when the patient comes to you, the first thing that you should do, and I got this from my mentor in San Diego, Dr. Dennis Wenger, first thing you should do is you should read their t-shirt. Um, so with any patient, uh, when you walk into that room, you have to be able to um, establish trust pretty quickly. And so if a 12-year-old girl's coming to me with a problem like scoliosis, it sounds like this big, bad problem. They're, they're terrified, they're anxious, and you really have to figure out a way to connect to them. Um, so uh, read their t-shirt. You know, if they're wearing a t-shirt or, you know, try to talk to them, what are they interested in? You know, what do they want to be when they grow up? I think that's really, really important. So when a kid comes in, you know, if, a, if like an eight-year-old boy comes in, I say, hey, do you like playing Roblox or Minecraft? Because almost all of them do. If that kid is a little bit older and a boy, it might be, mine, it might be um, uh, Fortnite. Uh, for girls, uh, you know, I, I ask them, you know, what they're into. Some of them are into music. Uh, I love music, so we, we talk about that. But it's really important in that first 30 seconds to a minute to figure out what they like to do and then have them just talk about it. And then what that does is it lowers their defenses and it gets them to trust you. Um, so first thing to do, make them trust you. Um, the second thing... Yeah, I, I think it's really important. I, I think it's one of those things like, you know, especially when you become an attending, you, you, you get slotted into like these 15 minute or 10 minute time slots to see a patient. And really it's not enough time, but in that short amount of time, you can make it really effective if you can get them to trust you. And so I, I recommend spending that first minute or so just talking about whatever, you know, whatever the kids are into. So. Yeah, and I, that was something that one of my pediatric attendants always told me. And even in a setting like this, or if it's a traumatic injury or something like that, and the kid is in pain, I mean, you have a short period of time to, you know, get on that kid's good side, or you lose them. And and sometimes you, it's no coming back. Sometimes they just they're done trying to trust you if you do the wrong thing or don't really get on their team relatively early. So I think that's a great tip. Yeah, for sure. And it, I mean, even for adults, too, I, I think it's just really, really important for, you know, anyone to to do to do that so that they you can establish a relationship. Uh, I mean, it, it's for any field as a doctor. Number one thing is they have to trust you. Um, 
Absolutely. And so for everybody yeah. who's listening, the, the we're, we're spending a lot of time on that, but it is very key. And like you say, any relationship, doctor, doctor, patient relationship is, is really, really major, I think. For sure. And so this 12 year old kids coming to me to my office, they have, um, you know, what a pediatrician saw as scoliosis and the way they saw it is exactly what we, we see on the screen here, which is where um, patients uh, will bend over and they see a prominence usually on the right side of the thorax. And the prominence is because of a rotation that happens secondary to the uh, deformity. Um, and uh, if you have an iPhone, there's an app that is on every iPhone, unless you're unless you're rocking like iphone one from like 2006 <laughs> maybe um, so Who knows? exactly that's why i had to i had to put that out there so um if you have the iphone if you just look for the app called measure it is um, one of the apps that comes on every iphone and if you uh, look at measure and then you just swipe over to the right it'll actually give you an inclinometer and I use that. That's what I use to put on a kid's back to see, you know, how much rotation a kid has. If that number is greater than five degrees, then it's worth it for um, a specialist like me to look at it or to get x-rays um, just to make sure. Uh, a friend of mine, Kais Naziri from Brooklyn, he... Um, he actually wrote a paper on this, uh, basically showing that the um, iPhone scoliometer is just as good as an analog scoliometer within one degree, which proves to me two things. Number one, the scoliometer is really good. And number two, that uh, you can write a paper on anything in orthopedics. Yeah, just uh, have some decent data. Next thing you know, boom, it's out there. Exactly, exactly. And so the so first thing, that's why the patient got sent to you. So what you want to know is, is this kid growing or is this kid not growing? That's the most important thing. If a kid is growing, um, then uh, you're gonna be more worried about the curve getting worse than if the kid is done growing. Um, so that, that's really the critical thing. And so then we have to look at what things can we ask them or look on exam or x-ray um, to see whether or not they're growing and how much growth do they have remaining. So the classic thing for the history is to say, have you had your menstrual periods yet? Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is because the menstrual periods correspond to uh, just around the period of maximal growth in girls. Um, and why do I keep bringing up girls? Because scoliosis tends to happen much more often in girls than in boys, especially in curves that are progressive, that uh, require surgical or management. Um, and so that, that's really the critical thing. So make them trust you, you know, uh, how to, you know, do they have rotation in their back and then how much growth do they have remaining? And then on the physical exam, you wanna look at all the other things. Uh, are their heads above, directly above their pelvis? Do they have any shoulder asymmetry? Do they have any waist asymmetry because of the curve? Um, and so those are all things that you wanna notice on your physical exam uh, to make sure to see, is this a real scoliosis? The other thing too is um, uh, sometimes kids can have a limb-like discrepancy. So when you have them bend over, you wanna look at what happens to the pelvis. If it looks like one side of the pelvis is higher than the other when they bend over, then perhaps the patient doesn't have a true scoliosis. Maybe it's a false scoliosis because the patient has a limb-like discrepancy. So all those things you can notice just from having them bend over, uh, just from looking at their back. You know what, one thing that I noticed that you did not say is that they come in with complaints of back pain. Do do these kids normally have pain even, even though, you know, mom find out that baby girl has, you know, this, I don't know, let's say 20 to, uh, yeah, let's say 20 degree uh, curve is, is, do they have to worry about back pain coming more so than anyone else? Yeah, so back pain with scoliosis is not the usual presenting problem. Um, so if someone comes into uh, the office saying they have scoliosis and they have back pain, um, I, I make them I, I make them tell me what type of back pain it is, and I, I call it the palm sign. Um, if someone, if I say, hey, where is your pain, and they use their palm and they kind of wave it around the entire back, to me that I'm not worried about that whatsoever. If they're just waving their palm around like their entire back, it's usually you know kind of muscular in nature, uh, can be improved with physical therapy or conditioning, um, and it's not usually a structural problem that needs to be fixed. But if they use what I call the finger sign, if you ask them where does it hurt, and if they point with one finger to a particular spot and say it hurts here, it always hurts here when it happens, um, you know that's when I get a little bit more concerned. So um, I think those are critical things to ask um, during your physical exam. 
Okay. And while we're just kind of mentioning, you know, concerning things to look out for when evaluating someone with uh, scoliosis, are, are there certain things that you're looking for that may key you in that this may be, uh, you know, their scoliosis, scoliosis may be due to some kind of secondary, uh, secondary cause? Yeah, so the, so the number one thing, um, when you see a kid with scoliosis, usually it's a right-sided scoliosis, meaning that the curve goes to the right side of the chest, and then you see kind of a prominence on that side as well. If the curve goes the other way, if the curve goes to the left side, that's really concerning for a neurologic abnormality. Um, so that, that's number one. If you see a left-sided, left thoracic curve, be really, really on the lookout. Is this truly regular scoliosis or is there something else going on? Does this patient have a syrinx? Does this patient have an Arnold Chiari malformation or a tethered cord? Does the patient have a tumor? I remember I saw this kid with a left-sided scoliosis, sent, in, sent the kid for an MRI, and the kid had the biggest spinal cord tumor I'd ever seen in my life. Um, it extended, I, I think it was 15 levels. Um, Dang. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't believe the kid was walking. Um, so it, it's really important. If you have a left-sided curve, um, be really concerned for intraspinal anomaly. And then also look at the skin. If you see any hairy patches on the skin, it's probably not your garden variety adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Um, it could be something else like a congenital scoliosis or spina bifida. Um, if you see any discolorations on the skin, any types of cafe au lait spots, um, you know, uh, cafe au lait spots, especially if they're numerous, that, that usually means something like neurofibromatosis type one. Um, sometimes if the cafe au lait spots are bigger and uh, kind of jumbled together, it could be something like a McCune-Albright syndrome. Um, on the tests, and I'm guilty of this sometimes because I help to write questions for the OITE and the AB ABOS. Um, I, I don't know the difference between the coast of California and the coast of Maine. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know what, what is different about them, but basically small spots and a lot of them that's neurofibromatosis, larger spots and less of them Then I'm thinking of something like McCune Albright syndrome. Um, and then also, you know, you got to look to see, are there any foot deformities? Are there asymmetric abdominal reflexes? All those things would point to something that maybe is not your garden variety adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Absolutely. Okay. And once we get past this point, um, heading towards the next stage, as far as imaging, what type of imaging are you normally getting for these patients? Yeah, so the, the standard imaging that every scoliosis patient gets, regardless of screening, pre-op, post-op, is a standing PA and lateral x-ray of the thoracolumbar spine. Um, and so basically, we have them um, uh, where the beam is basically going from the back to the front. Um, and, uh, and you want to take an AP and lateral. Um, and if you have the ability to take it in a machine like an EOS machine, you can take both of those films at the same time with less radiation. Um, the other thing you can do, which is really helpful, um, there was a paper written um, out of uh, UPenn, the senior author is Jack Flynn, um, but basically to put your hands up uh, above the level of the shoulder and what that lets you do is it lets you look at the growth plates of the fingers and the distal radius to evaluate a sander stage to see how much growth the kid has remaining. So if you, basically you wanna be able to look at that and then you also wanna be able to get the tops of the iliac crest if you can so that you can determine a risk or sign as well. Perfect. And so um, I, I think the maybe the easiest way to go about this is could we could you explain what we're looking for um, regarding like our risk or sign versus Sanders? And then I think from that we can go into what we're looking for with actual um, spine films like the spine concentrating on that. For sure. Um, so the Risser sign is something that has been in use, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years. Um, and basically, um, it's a good sign because you can look at almost any spine x-ray and you can, um, you can be able to see it because the, usually the iliac crest is, is visible for all of these kids. 
And so um, the, that's why it's a good sign. The reason why it's not the perfect sign is because what we found is that um, once kids actually start to see um, that risker sign appear, then they're starting actually on the downslope of their growth phase. So if you imagine growth velocity to be look, looking like essentially a mountain, um, at the top of that mountain is, is basically when a child's triradiate cartilage closes uh, in, the, uh, in the pelvis and right around the time that menarche happens. And so that's what we call peak height velocity. And then the iliac apophysis, which is on top of the uh, iliac crest, that starts to ossify starting from lateral to medial. Um, and when we stage it, all we're doing is we're splitting that iliac apophysis into uh, four quadrants. And if you're in that first quadrant, you're, you're a risser stage one, and then stage two is in the second quadrant and, and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So, and if it's all the way fuse across, um, like most orthopedic surgeons have, uh, that's completed ossification, that's a stage five. And there, there's no iliac apophysis visible. Okay. And yeah, so, and, yeah, go yeah, ahead, go no, I was going to say, so um, I think that's, that's great that we went over that. And what, I guess, if you compare this to the Sanders classification, and you can kind of briefly talk about what the Sanders classification is, which one, um, which one do you, do you kind of just use clues from everything that you can uh, obtain, or do you kind of go using your Sanders more? I know we were talking a little bit before we started this, um, this podcast about it. Yeah, so we, we use a little bit of everything. So I, I think all of them have some utility. I think the one that probably is the is the most valuable for us now is that Sanders staging. And the reason the Sanders staging is most valuable for us is because usually when I'm looking at a height velocity, I'm trying to determine whether or not a kid needs to be put into a brace. Um, or, you know, some other means to minimize scoliosis to prevent surgery. And if a kid's already got the development of a wrist or sign, that tells me they don't have a lot of growth remaining and that the brace is going to be left, less effective. And so the nice thing about that wrist or sign, I'm sorry, the sander stage is you can actually kind of stage kids out before the iliac apophysis ossifies. So before the uh, wrist or sign uh, starts to appear. And so basically we can kind of titrate out even earlier those kids um, to see how much growth they have remaining and give them kind of better ideas about prognosis and surgical timing if we need to do it. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, and those are, that's a good classification to use. I remember we were going, me and one of my attendings were going through it because normally we looked at the wrister, but now we started looking at the Sanders, at least when I was on pediatrics. So that was something I, I had to learn. Um, so now I guess comes to the kind of meat, meat of it. Um, what do we, what are we looking for when we are looking at a spine PA? What are like, there's a lot of terms thrown around like a stable vertebra, apical vertebra, cob angle, like what are, what are these things, um, what do these things mean? And for those that are listening, we'll try to describe this the best that we can over audio, but we also do have a uh, video that goes along with this so you can see what we're talking about as well. Yeah, so the, I think the, the most important thing when you look at any spine x-ray, you want to standardize kind of how you look at it. So the first thing I usually do is try to look at it so that the left side is left on the screen and the right side is right. Uh, and the reason that's important is because when we do an operation, most spine people want to look at a, a spine from the back and we want the x-rays to look at it. And that's different from almost anything else in orthopedics where you want to be looking at it as an AP with the left side on the right and the right side on the left. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to that slide before, um, so uh, basically the first thing that I draw on any x-ray is the center sacral vertical line. So the center sacral vertical line is a line that bisects um, between the sacral facets uh, and it just goes straight up uh, on the x-ray. And the reason I want to draw that is because that center sacral vertical line tells me where the center of that patient's universe is. Um, the center of the universe is that central sacral vertical line, CSVL we call it. Um, and basically you want to see how deviated the, the curve is from there, but also how deviated is the head, how deviated are the shoulders. That's really to me the center of the universe. So I draw that line first. After I've drawn that line, then I will draw a cobbing. 
The Cobb angle is tricky, I can tell you, especially if you're just starting out to do it. And don't be afraid to be wrong the first times you do it. I have all my residents and all my uh, trainees try to draw Cobb angles, and then you know they, they can draw them. And if they don't get it right, I show them how to do it right. So the most important thing is the Cobb angle is basically the vertebra. It's a line that um, shows an angle between the vertebra um, that are most deflected with respect to horizontal. And so if you do your Cobb angles and you see that a Cobb angle between the end plate of like, let's call it L1 and the end plate of like T3 is 30 degrees. But if you made it like the end plate of T12 to like T5 and that's 40 degrees, the 40 degrees is more accurate. So you wanna see where the biggest number comes from. So the most deflection, and it's gonna take some practice, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a while to get it. Even in my fellowship, I really had to do this hundreds of times until I really felt comfortable with it. Yeah, I know. Even, you know, just in a clinic setting, uh, you know, you go see your patient and I try to go ahead and draw some of this stuff out and the Cobb angles, I'm always off of vertebrae too. <laughs> By the time, you know, the attendant come in, oh, it's like, uh, I'll probably start here, start it here and end it there. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah, no, yep. it, it definitely. Exactly. Uh, you just got to keep trying it over and over again. It's practice, just like anything else. Yep, absolutely. So, so the first thing you do, just to kind of sum it up, you said the first thing you do is you get your center um, sacral vertical line and you draw that first and you can kind of see how deviated the spine is as well as the uh, position of their head and the kind of overall alignment. Then second is you go uh, and you find out what the Cobb angle is and you draw them off the um, vertebra of the most, I guess, angled vertebra. What, what are some of the other um, terminology or things that we should, you know, know uh, as far as when we're looking at these scoliosis films, like the end vertebra and, you know, um, apex, like all these different terms. Sure. So the apex is easy. So if you've drawn that Cobb angle already, the apex is the one that is most uh, deflected uh, from the from the midline, from center sacral vertical line. So it, just pick the pick the vertebra that is the farthest away from the center sacral vertical line. That's the apex of the curve. Um, as far as when we talk about the end vertebra, the end vertebra means the end of your Cobb angles. So wherever you drew your Cobb angles from, those are your end vertebra. Um, so that's the easiest way to remember it. Your neutral vertebra is the one that is neutrally rotated as far as the film is concerned. And how do I know something is neutrally rotated? If you look at the screen here, uh, um, you see that the pedicles, they look like eyes. They look like eyes within um, the, the vertebra. And it's where, those, it's where those eyes look to be even on um, both sides, like even distance from the left and the right sides. And you can see that neutral vertebra that's uh, written here, you can see those pedicles, um, they have the same amount of space, uh, medial, I'm sorry, to the left and to the right uh, from where the pedicles are. Whereas if you look at where that end vertebra is, because of that rotation, those pedicles have moved over to the, the, the patient's right side or on the left side of the screen here. So really the neutral vertebra is the one that we see that is neutrally rotated. And I think those are really important. The last vertebra that we sometimes talk about is the stable vertebra. The stable vertebra is the, is the uh, vertebra that is most cephalad, meaning highest toward the head, um, that is bisected by the uh, center sacral vertical line. So the last, last vertebra that's cut in half uh, by the center sacral vertical line, that is your stable vertebra. On this picture here, that's L3. Your neutral vertebra here is L2, and your end vertebra appears to be T12. Actually, T11, excuse me. Oh, wow, that was great. And I mean, I remember for a very long time, they tried to explain that to me yeah. <laughs> on our pediatric rotation, just never understood it. I was like, I, I guess this is a stable, I guess this is a neutral vertebra. Yeah. Um, so thanks for explaining that. And just to kind of, again, recap off of that, because uh, you know, repetition is the father of learning. Um, so our end vertebra, end vertebra are the ones where we got our Cobb angles from. Our neutral vertebra is going to be the vertebra where the pedicles are even on both sides. And then our stable vertebra is going to be the most cephalid um, uh, vertebra that gets bisected by the center sacral vertical line. 
That's right. So the one that's cut in half. And if you know all the, I mean, that's, that just takes practice. So, but you can see like, it's really easy to see on this picture. Like, yeah. you know, one of them's cut in half, that's L3, you know, just counting from the bottom. Neutral one has the one where the, um, the eyes are completely leveled, you know, e equidistant from each side, uh, the pedicles, and, and then the end vertebra is just the end of each cob angle. And, and do you measure these, because um, I know we talk about like getting bending films as well. Um, so do you measure them after you get the bending film and, you know, you, you see what is, uh, I guess, what's flexible? Or maybe we can talk about that. We can talk about yeah. bending films, when to get them, and then what we should do with those. So most kids that come to my office with scoliosis do not get bending films. Um, most kids get a standing PA and lateral radiograph of the thoracolumbar spine. Um, but the bending films really are useful when you're doing pre-surgical planning. So the only time I get it um, is when I'm trying to figure out when, what I'm going to do for surgery. And the reason it's important is because, number one, uh, it helps you plan for surgery where I'm going to stop if I'm going to put in implants. Number two, to help classify it. So in general, when we think about surgery, stiff curves, the, the curves that don't bend out, those are the ones that we are going to instrument and fuse. The ones that do bend out, usually we leave alone because if we can straighten out and fuse the stiff curves, um, though we call those structural curves. If we can straight, straighten those out, then the ones that bend out on a bending x-ray, those usually will follow suit. So if you look at these x-rays right here, you can clearly see that thoracic curve, although it bends a little bit on that right bending film, the first picture you see here, mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't bend a ton. It, that picture, if you kind of rotated it, looks very similar to that standing PA uh, view that you see on the right side. So that curve is a structural curve that's going to need to be addressed with surgery. But if you look at the lumbar spine here, the lumbar spine, although it's curved on that fourth picture, the PA um, x-ray, if you look at that second picture, that lumbar curve completely goes away on the bender. That tells me that is a non-structural curve. I do not need to fuse that. And that's going to be straight if I can make the thoracic curve straight. And again, just to highlight some points, because these are all like high yield, or at least in my head, I, I, I kept hearing these and it was like, I don't know what these guys are talking about. But again, the structural versus non-structural. So if you get a bending film and the curve uh, uh, straightens up, that is going to be a non-structural curve versus if you get a bending film and the curve is still the same, that's going to be a structural curve. That's correct. And so the, the way we go about these two, the biggest curve to us is always going to be the structural curve. Um, so, uh, and then any of the subsequent curves like these, the lumbar spine here, that's where we have to determine, is this a structural curve or is this a non-structural curve? And that's when bending films really do help. And, you know, we're, we're kind of talking all around it now, and I was going to discuss it a bit later, but since we're kind of going over structural curves, non-structural curves, main curves, and things like that. Can we go ahead and, and speak about the Linky uh, classification as well? For sure. So um, the Linky classification, um, just in general terms, um, determines whether which, which curves are structural versus non-structural curves. Um, I don't think it's super important that you memorize, you know, Linky one through six, and then there's the lumbar modifiers, and then there's the kyphosis modifier. I think the key to know with that linky classification is, is it a structural curve? Is it a not a structural curve? And that's really the critical part about it. If the biggest curve is always structural, the curves that bend out, those are non-structural curves. So, um, so that's really where the linky classification is important. All the other things, those do help to some degree to help classify them and help figure out where we're going to um, fuse or not. Um, but that's less important than thinking about what bends out and what does not bend out. Um, of note, in the lanky classification, if someone does have kyphosis in an area, that also makes it structural. If it's greater than 25 degrees kyphosis, we, we consider that a structural curve as well. So that's, that's something to think about, but really just think about, is it flexible? Is it not flexible? If it's not flexible, it's got to be operated on. If it is flexible, it does not need to be operated on. And then I think there's one thing that we didn't talk about that we could talk about is the lateral um, film of the of the spine, and you know, I hear things like a plumb line, et cetera, et cetera. Can you 
kind of go over that and some things that we should uh, be on the lookout for or evaluate on, on the lateral um, film? For sure. So I think the lateral film is absolutely critical. And when I think back to earlier in my career where I, I've made mistakes in picking levels, it's because I really didn't appreciate the lateral film nearly enough. In the spine world, the lateral, um, the sagittal balance, we call it, that is like, um, that's like the spine, spine Jesus right now. Like uh, everybody, everybody is into sagittal balance. There's so many things. I mean, this sagittal balance is like, this would have to be like eight hours of uh, talking and, and yeah. I'm not planning to do that tonight. Um, but <laughs> as far as the important thing to know about that lateral film, you just want balance. Like the body wants to be balanced. So if you notice that someone has imbalance on that sagittal film, if you're going to address it, you got to make sure you address that sagittal imbalance too. One of the things that we know about scoliosis, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, that it's usually caused because of the front of the spine is growing faster than the back of the spine. And because that happened, they actually lose, they actually lose kyphosis in the thoracic spine. They actually become flatter in that part. Um, and so you should actually see that on a kid of, uh, with scoliosis, that they're a little flatter in the thoracic spine than, the, than most kids are. Um, if you don't see that, if you see kyphosis happening in that area, then instantly, just like a left thoracic curve, um, you know, you should be like, man, is this an intraspinal anomaly? I should get an MRI. If you see kyphosis with the scoliosis, I'm thinking the same thing. Is this an intraspinal anomaly? Perhaps I should get an MRI. So left-sided curve or lots of kyphosis, you really should be thinking something may be going on inside of the spine. All right. And all right, that's, I think that's all good stuff. Now, I mean, we've, we've really been going over some pearls that I think anyone who, you know, you know, I don't know about test purposes, but as far as clinic wise, I think just dealing with patients with scoliosis, we've really been hitting some gems. So I really appreciate that you spend a little extra time going through these things. Um, so we, we've kind of talked about the x-rays pretty in detail. When are you considering getting an MRI? For these patients right so mri is not something that we give on ever uh, that we do on every kid um, for me it's going to be patients um, who like we said those the an atypical curve a left side left thoracic curve kid with a lot of kyphosis that kid's getting an mri um, if a kid has really rapid curve progression let's say you see a kid they have like a 15 degree curve when you see them that 12 year old we were talking about then i see the kid six months later and that 15 degree curve became 45 degrees in six months that is not normal you know when even when kids have regular scoliosis and they progress they may progress five degrees you know maybe maybe up to 10 but anything more than that within six months i i would be like you know what this is progressing really fast there may be something going on like a tumor or a syrinx that's causing this remember we talked about back pain if someone says i have back pain and i, sh I say show me where and they use their palm or their hand and they wave it around their whole back i'm not really that worried about it but if they say you know what i have back pain it's always right here point to a particular spot um, you know, that could be a spondylolysis or a spondylolisthesis that's causing an issue. That could be trauma. That could be an osteoidosteoma. That, those are things that I'd want to really evaluate further. Um, uh, any type of neurologic deficit or anything you see on your physical exam that's abnormal, abnormal thoracic reflex, if someone's hyperreflexic, I'm going to get an MRI. Um, any, anyone with any kind of stiffness in the neck, maybe it's not a regular garden variety scoliosis. Maybe it's something else like a congenital scoliosis. Um, and then anything like severe unexplained headaches that come on, uh, mood swings, um, that could be a syrinx. That could be an Arnold Chiari malformation. And then this is a classic test question. I've personally written this question, I think, twice in the last six or seven years, talking about uh, um, cavus feet. So the orthopedic maxim bilateral cavus feet that are progressive, that Charcot-Marie tooth until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. But if it's a unilateral cavus foot um, that is progressive, that is a tethered cord until proven otherwise. All right, Dr. Show. That was great. <laughs> I was about to say, Dr. Show, I'm pretty sure you've gotten plenty of residents from that question. But no, it's, it's actually, I think yeah. that's, uh, that's really high yield. I'm glad that you made a, a point to mention that. 
And this yeah, is I mean, and that's the thing yeah, in scoliosis. There's only so many things we can ask you. I can't ask you what levels you you would do for uh, scoliosis because you know that's that's not appropriate. Like you know, all spine surgeons have different kind of rules for it. But right. I can't ask you this stuff. Right. Right. And and just doing a quick recap about you know MRI and imaging, um, the things that you may be on the lookout for. I know you mentioned it a couple of times. Is one is a, is a syrinx. Uh, another is an Arnold Curiari uh, malformation, or if they, they can also have tumors in the spine, osteoidosteomas, or any other tumors. And reasons to get an MRI is anybody that has a rapid curve progression, back pain, any deficits, uh, of course, our cavus feet, our bilateral cavus feet, um, you know, sometimes uh, stiff stiffness in their neck as well as any unexplained headaches. But um, yeah, I think that was a great, um, great breakdown of MRI, when to get an MRI, and what you are looking for on MRI. And I guess kind of just moving along, what do we do about treatment? So how do you go about, um, about saying, okay, well, this patient, this is something we don't need to do anything about. We just need to monitor and have you come back in six months versus saying, all right, we should probably start bracing. And then do you do bracing all day or is it just nighttime? Or, you know, can you kind of go into the treatment of this? Yeah, so as far as um, treatment's concerned, it, it, the most important thing is, like we talked about in the beginning, is the kid growing or is the kid not? If the kid is growing, you have to be a little bit more concerned because things can get worse. Scoliosis is the disease of the growing, really. And once kids are done growing, progression, if it happens, is going to happen much more slowly. So th that's really the most important thing, growing or not growing. Number two, I think, is important. How, um, you know, how big is the curve? Is the curve um, greater than 50 degrees? If, the, if a kid is done growing, but that curve is greater than 50 degrees, we know that that curve is gonna progress throughout that kid's lifetime, approximately one to two degrees a year for the rest of their life. Um, and so, so that's really important. If it's a small curve and it stays small until a kid's done growing, less than 50 degrees, highly unlikely to progress a lot more. But 50 degrees tends to be right about that cutoff where we think, you know what, this is going to get worse and we probably have to do something surgically about it. Um, and, and so as far as how do we prevent curves from getting worse? In that growing kid that we talked about, if we notice that the growing kid um, has uh, a curve that is progressive, if, if I see a kid, that kid and they have a 15 degree curve, but the next time I see them, they have a 20 to 25 degree curve, then I know that this is progressing as the kid grows. And we're gonna have to try to do something to modify the progression of that curvature. So Stu Weinstein, former president of the AOS, former president of Scoliosis Research Society, former president of uh, Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America. So really accomplished guy, really nice man. He wrote a paper, I think it was in 2013 or 14, that was published in New England Journal of Medicine, an actual real medical journal, not um, our medical journals. Um, it was so important, it, it got published in a New England Journal, uh, but basically saying that bracing works. It was a prospective, um, uh, semi-randomized trial um, that uh, looked at uh, patients who got a brace versus patients who didn't get a brace. Um, those kids who got a brace um, were much more likely to prevent surgery than the kids who did not get a brace. And so the stuff that gets tested on this is Number one, do braces work? Yes, they do. But number two, how long you wear the brace is really, really important. So the key number is a patient must wear the brace at least 12.9 hours a day or 13 hours just around, at least 13 hours a day um, to have a 90% or better chance of preventing curve regression to surgery. And obviously, the more you wear the brace in the day, the, the less the chance that you will need surgery. So if you wear it up to 17.7 hours, or let's round it, 18 hours, then your chance of um, progression to surgery is, is uh, less than 6%, so 94% chance of preventing surgery. So those numbers are critical to know. 13, you need to do at least 13 hours a day. So when I see a kid like that, I don't tell them, hey, you can wear it 13 hours a day. I tell them, wear it as much as humanly possible. Let's shoot for 20 to 22 hours a day. So let's say they cheat and they only wear, oh, Dr. Cho, I'm so sorry, only wore 18 hours today. In my brain, I know, you know what? 
um, I, I still have them at a point where they're wearing the braces a lot and it's much more than uh, those thresholds, 18, 18 hours or 13 hours. Yep. I, um, I always, I realized that one time I was, uh, and this is total, totally different type of thing, but just as far as overshoot so that you can expect for them to kind of undershoot what you say and they still do fine. I remember I was in high school and I was over putting together this class trip and when it came to getting the money, I would always tell people that I need the money probably at least 10 to 14 days before I actually need it. Because every time <laughs> they're going to, every chance, it, half of them is going to be a certain percentage that will not get it to you on time. But if you give them some room for error, they still end up making it just by, just, just by chance. Like if you would have told them the correct date, they would have messed that, that up too. But <laughs> if you give them a little room for error, uh, I think that really helps in it. In this particular topic, I always thought, you know, that young teenage girl, you know, she's 14, 15, going to high school, going, you know, she 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 don't want to wear that brace. It doesn't maybe look as cool as she might want. Um, so I definitely think it's probably really hard for them to stay in that brace as much as they should. So yeah, definitely give them a whole, a much bigger, larger goal than what they actually need is a great idea. For sure. And then how do we kind of measure compliance on this or like how much they're actually wearing it? Um, we use thermal sensors. So if they wear it, the sensor will detect that it's on. Uh, and if they don't wear it, then the detector detects it's off. And then we can download the data um, through a USB port. So uh, oh, wow. we can, yeah, we use the I thermal sensors. really good. Yeah. And they're not that expensive. And it, it basically, we can know whether or not, you know, they're, they're telling us the truth. Um, most kids are reasonably honest, but, uh, about wearing the brace, but uh, they usually get the times wrong. They'll, they'll say, you know what, I think I'm wearing it all day. It's like, well, actually you're only wearing it, you know, 17 hours a day. It's like, Oh, yeah. like, I thought I was wearing it more. I thought I was wearing it 22. Yeah. Um, and then does it correct scoliosis? It, we, we don't say it corrects scoliosis. It, try, it holds scoliosis and prevents it, hopefully, from getting worse um, uh, to, to that 50-degree threshold, which would require surgery. Absolutely. I think that's a good distinction to make, uh, make clear to the patient and the parents. Like, uh, this is not going to make the scoliosis go away, but we're hoping that this, you know, does not make it work, uh, helps it not progress, so. Uh, just something. Yeah, and I just leave it. I leave it on them. I say, listen, I love doing surgery. So if you don't want to wear the brace, that's cool with me. You know, like yeah. um, I'm happy to do it. And uh, usually that gets you know the parents to laugh, and you know it, it puts the onus of responsibility on the patient. You know, to say, you know what, if I don't want surgery, this is really the best way to go. Absolutely. And before we get into the operative management, can we just kind of mention what patient group are we just kind of watching closely for a while? Yeah, so kids with, uh, so basically any kid that's growing with less than a 25 degree curve, I'm going to be seeing them about every six months um, with a PA and lateral standing x-ray. Um, and the reason I want to do that is I just want to make sure this kid's not going to have a progressive curve. Um, but kids who uh, are growing and have greater than 25 degree curves, those kids are probably going to be in a brace um, of some type. Um, and those kids, I also see every six months, but I usually take those um, x-rays out of the brace to see what the curve progression seems to be. I also tell the kids the night before, you get to not wear your brace to sleep and you get to not wear it until I see you in the clinic, but bring it with you. Uh, and the reason I do that is because sometimes the brace works reasonably, if it works really well, it can give you a false sense of where the spine is um, because it's kind of holding them up, your back's used to it. And if you just take it off right before the x-ray, sometimes it gives you a false sense of security. So um, that's really uh, critical to take it off the night before. And then on the older kids, if the older kids have, let's say, less than a 50 degree curve, then I, I really only um, follow them up every so often just to make sure they don't have any progression. But if a kid's completely skeletal and mature, let's say, you know, with a 25 degree curve, I say, good luck to you, you know, maybe get an x-ray every five to 10 years uh, just to make sure. But, um, you know, it's highly unlikely to be progressive. Yep. And all good little technical pearls to keep in mind uh, in the clinic. And moving to the surgical patient, you know, of course, the progressive curve, uh, what, but what, what are some of the things that's going to lead you to surgery and what are, are you doing at, you know, usually what approaches are you taking and things like that? 
Yeah. So, so if you are going to proceed to surgery, you know, you got to have a threshold. Most people's threshold is somewhere between 45 and 50 degrees, depending on the, uh, on the surgeon. Uh, but we all agree that that's approximately the threshold. Um, if we're going to do surgery, the gold standard for surgery still is posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation, um, just like you see on the screen here. Um, and the gold standard these days is to use um, all pedicle screw constructs, uh, meaning um, pedicle screw um, into the vertebral body. You don't necessarily have to go into every level, um, but um, using all pedicle screws as opposed to using what was used in the past, which is uh, uh, hook constructs or hybrid constructs. Um, so that, that's something that would be standard of care. Um, there are other options available. Anterior spinal fusion about 10 to 15 years ago was very popular, but that's less often done now, um, partially because of morbidity through, for going through the chest or the lumbar spine, and partially because it's technically more challenging. Um, uh, and then uh, there's newer technologies on the horizon. So in a growing kid, there's a new technology called the anterior vertebral body tether. Kids who are growing, um, basically we're doing, um, we're, we're using the Huter-Volkman law to help correct the spine over time. Orthopedics really only has two laws, uh, Wolf's law and Huter-Volkman. Wolf's law is like in adults and in trauma. Wolf's law means, you know, the uh, bone responds to the amount of stress you put put on it. So these Kung Fu masters that are uh, punching uh, wood all day, that's why they can, um, you know, punch through wooden boards. If I tried to do that, I'd break my hand um, because they've been doing it all day, every day. Their bones are super strong. In kids, it's different though. In kids, we don't think about Wolf's Law nearly as much as we think about this huter Wolfman Law. And that's the law of physis. Um, basically, growing bone, physis, they, um, it responds more positively, it'll grow better if it's under tension than if it's under compression. So as you can imagine, if a scoliosis is happening, the, the worse the scoliosis gets in a growing child, the more compression they're going to get on the concave side of that curve and the worse it's going to get. It's kind of like this wicked loop. Um, and so what the tether does is it offloads that concave side. Um, so to make that Huter-Volkman principle kind of come to play, you're offloading the compressive side, putting tensile forces on it, and you're compressing, you're compressing the other side, the convex side. The best kind of, you know, I love Michael Jordan, um, and uh, the best kind of analogy I can give to it, you know, Michael Jordan's dad's not that tall, um, but uh, apparently when he was a kid and he was growing, he would be hanging from the tree out front of his house um, all day. And so he, he got to be six foot six. I don't know if this is a true story, but it, <laughs> it, it, it illustrates the point of uh, the Huter Volkman principle. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. And interesting. And just, just a thought. I'm just kind of curious. This is, do you ever do any kind of corrective adult re corrective surgeries? I know in, in children, you know, if they come acutely, but if this problem kind of comes later due to maybe degeneration or they start having like these kyphotic deformities and things like that, do you ever treat the adult population as well? Yeah, so I treat, so to me, a kid, uh, a kid is a kid who is kind of before adolescence. So those are the kids that aren't adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. We treat those differently than the teenagers that you're talking about. Growing kids, I, you know, I will usually treat with a brace until I can't anymore, then surgery happens. And then kids who are done growing, those are the kids I actually consider adults. As soon as your bones are done growing, to me, physiologically, you're an adult. Um, and you can treat with uh, spinal fusion if you have to. And then some of the kids are older. So, you know, I've, I have kids that are like 20 years old. Those kids sometimes have really bad curves, maybe are from international, they've been neglected, and the curves are so big and so stiff that they won't get better just by loosening things up in the back uh, using your implants. Sometimes we actually have to remove vertebra and then you know, kind of disassemble the spine and put it back together again. Um, and that's like a vertebral column resection. We do those as well. Um, and those are difficult, technically challenging operations. You know, just doing that, that's basically just an osteotomy, just like you would do, let's say in trauma, you, let, you have a malunion, you have a, you know, valgus femur, you would do like a closing wedge osteotomy of the femur to make that not valgus anymore. 
Um, we're doing the same thing in the spine with the vertebral column section. We just have to do it around the spinal cord and nerves to make sure that people don't get paralyzed. But it's the same principle. Much more <laughs> higher risk. <laughs> yeah, definitely higher yeah. risk uh, and takes longer, but it's exactly yeah. the same principle. Yeah. Sounds like a spine and, um, surgeon's dream. Those big, right. long 13-hour cases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I tell you, you know, I, I love doing those cases, but let me tell you, if I see like a 50-degree curve, that, that also makes me happy because I know that I'm not going to be sore the day after. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are rough. And um, one last question before we wrap up, and I know this question, could, it could probably be a whole podcast on it, but how do you how do you choose, you know, what levels to fuse at? You know, before I'd, I'd go in, they'd be like, all right, we're doing uh, T4 to L4. And I'd say, all right, well, cool. I, I don't really know how you chose that. But I know, you know, some people, there's like an algorithmic. Some people look at the shoulder heights and then look at what's the stable vertebra, et cetera. Do you kind of just have in general like a, uh, tips and tricks or like an algorithm that you, that you use to uh, determine what levels you're going to fuse? Yeah, I mean, there, there. This is a huge, huge talk. I actually give my residents an hour-long talk on just this particular topic, but I will distill it down into basically two sentences. Um, so at the top, look at the shoulder balance. If on the pre-op X-ray, um, uh, the left shoulder is high, you have to go to T2. If the shoulders are even, you can probably go to T3. If the right shoulder is high then you can probably go to T4. And so again, left shoulder T2, shoulders even T3, right shoulder high um, T4. That is the easiest way to do it. It works for like 90% of the cases. Um, this was developed by Lenke's group when he was in um, WashU St. Louis. Um, and it works most of the time. Sometimes people get a little confused because um, remember, we talked about the structural curves and the non-structural curves. If that upper thoracic curve is structural, um, then it needs to be fused. So sometimes even if the right shoulder's high, I'll still fuse the T2 because that upper thoracic curve is structural. You have to address all structural curves. Um, the second sentence, how do I pick the bottom? The easiest way to pick the bottom, remember we talked about that first line you draw on an x-ray, the center sacral vertical line look to see the last vertebra that it substantially touches, meaning it touches at least the pedicle of that vertebra. So if you draw that line straight up and it goes to um, hit uh, the pedicle of a vertebra, the last one it touches, that's where you can stop. And on the x-rays you show here, this, this is a really good example. This is a huge curve. This is a long day of surgery. But up at the top, the left shoulder is high. Because that left shoulder is high, the surgeon stopped at L, uh, I'm sorry, T2. So left shoulder high, T2. And look, the shoulder balance is pretty good. It's not any worse than it was pre-op. And then if you look at the bottom, if we drew a center sacral vertical line, the last vertebra that would be bisected by that center, I'm sorry, last vertebra that's touched substantially by that center sacral vertical line is L3 here. And the surgeon went to L3 and look, the balance is really good. I would have picked the exact same levels as the surgeon who did this. Well, look at that. That is just fate right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 and like I said, this is the easiest way to think about it. So if you're stuck and you have no idea and, you know, you have some surgeons like, oh, hey, you know, how would you, you know, what, what levels would you pick, uh, you know, Cho? And I'd be like, well, I'd think back. Is the left shoulder high? Is the right shoulder high? That's the first thing. And then on the bottom, just draw that line. Draw that one line. Find the last vertebra that um, that at least touches the pedicle. Oh, I, I think this was a great, like really excellent um, podcast on you know intro to adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. I wish I I wish I had had this talk or listened to this before I started pediatrics, and I would have just been. It took me a while to figure out some of the scoliosis stuff, but you kind you got to show you broke it down. Uh, so well, and I know Jay's over there taking notes right now. That's why he's so quiet. I really am. I really am, and that's okay. That's all right. Um, you know, we really appreciate you for coming on and talking about scoliosis. Um, is there anything that you would like to leave the people with, or the people listening to, um, listening to this with? You know, any last sentence about you know adolescent idiopathic scoliosis that you want them to take away? Yeah, so so the I mean, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, it's reasonably common. You're going to see this regardless of if you're a knee surgeon. You know, you're going to see you're going to have 
um, your friends say, hey, my daughter has a scoliosis, what do you think? So you do need to know something about it, even if you don't um, um, treat it surgically. So that's number one. And then number two, you know, just as a general note to all the trainees out there, you know, uh, orthopedic residency can be hard. You know, hours are really long. Sometimes you feel underappreciated. Um, just remember, you know, any interaction you have a patient, any interaction you have with a family, that patient is someone's, you know, mother, that patient's someone's daughter, you know, that, and so always treat patients like they are, you know, a family member, like that they have people around them. And sometimes that's hard to do. You know, I, I worked in an inner city hospital, you know, with drug addicts coming in with, you know, falling from like three stories up, you know, but you still have to be, have, give compassion to these people. These people need your care. And just remember that, you know, although we're really good with saws, we're really good with drills, um, you got to remember that you got to connect with patients. You got to get them to trust you uh, and treat every patient like they're your family member. There it is. So, Dr. Cho, uh, before we end this uh, talk, we usually like to have our guests uh, put out any, you know, social media handles or anything they may have so that our listeners can reach out to them. It could be an email, could be social media. Do you have anything like that? Absolutely. So um, my my wife is way better at social media than me. I, I, um, but uh, I use uh, Dr. Bobby Bones, D-R-B-O-B-B-Y-B-O-N-E-S is uh, my handle for most things. I have a Twitter handle that's Dr. Robert Cho um, that I use professionally. Um, so you can find me on any of those. Um, if anyone has any questions about pediatric orthopedics, uh, about spine in general, happy to answer. Um, you know, I write questions for the OIT and the ABOS. Um, I'm on uh, POSNA's board of directors. So if you have any interest in a career this way, I love mentoring. I currently, I think, have uh, 10 mentees. So, um, uh, you know, if you have any interest in it, please uh, reach out to me. Um, and if you want to email me too, um, you know, probably direct message through social media is the easiest way uh, first. So do that first and then we can, you know, email and uh, figure things out. There it is. All right. Thank you everybody for listening. And again, thank you, Dr. Show, for this wonderful talk.